we have unprecedented ability to see just about anywhere at any time these days. Uh, there are uh, cameras at every store. Every time you go in, every time you come out, we all work part-time for Walmart because we do self-checkout, and there's that camera right there. I guess you're checking out. Uh, you're not getting paid for it, but you got a nice camera view right there. Almost every traffic light that you go through, camera. Tag readers popping up all over the place. We, we, we have cameras everywhere. We can, we can see not, not only close by, uh, we, we can see around the world. Thanks to webcams and live streams and, and live cams, Julie and I, a year and a half ago, went on a vacation to Mexico. Uh, it was our, our delayed COVID vacation, right? We all have at least one of those. And so this was our delayed COVID vacation and uh, went to Mexico. And the resort that we stayed at had a live cam that runs all the time. It's kind of over the, the pool area a little bit. And so we could go on in the weeks leading up to our vacation and we could see we're going to be at that place. I'm going to sit in that chair right there. I'm going to get in that pool. We could see where we were going uh, from uh, right here in, in between Georgia. And then when we got back, we could torture ourselves by going on and seeing, I wish I was back there in that chair at that place. Yeah, we, we, can, we can log on to webcams and live streams and see all over the place. Uh, weather channels have weather cams and traffic cams. News stations have cams all over the place. Uh, Earth cam.com you can log on there and there's just a list of live streams from Mexico and Brazil and and, and all over the country uh, as a matter of fact we got just a couple for you right here uh, this first one is of course you recognize this Midtown like this is live happening don't get too excited right now Midtown Atlanta Georgia you're able to see that take that in we can go a little farther out this is uh, Times Square obviously Right now, these people are in Times Square. You're looking live at Times Square in New York from the comfort of your seat at Journey Church. A little farther away, this next one, this is Taiwan. We could, we could see anywhere. Thanks to cameras, thanks to live streams, uh, we can see motorcycles almost getting run over uh, right there. Oh, oh, we got to see a bird. This is Pennsylvania bird feeder. Right, you can watch this all day long if the bird comes back. There he is. Look at that. That's happening right now. Hey, you're here. This, like, right there. That's happening right now. Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. You're a part of the action. Uh, one, one more. This is Norway. Ski lift. Anybody like to ski? Anybody want to go skiing? Hey, you are there. You are seeing it. You are looking into it. This is the world we live in. We could, we don't have this one, don't get too excited. We can see sometimes astronauts on the International Space Station. They send back videos, they do interviews. From here, we can see a ton of places. Some of you, it's not quite as exciting maybe. Some of you, if I ask you, you could show me what's happening at your house right now. You could pull out your phone, you could show me what's happening in the driveway, by the back door, maybe inside, maybe you have some cameras inside, keep an eye on the dogs, uh, that sort of thing. I'm the same way, I got cameras outside, I can show you outside my house, my driveway, my neighbor's house, when they leave, when they come back, that's kind of creepy, but my theory is my camera was there before they put the house there. You, you put the house in range of my camera, that's on you. 
Like, that's on you. It was already there. I was there. Hey, we have this ability to just see everywhere. Drop in anywhere. Find out what's going on. There is a name for God in the Bible that is simply the God who sees. The God who sees. And by the God who sees, <clears throat> I don't mean that he's checking webcams, right? Like he doesn't have ring posted all around the earth that gives him the ability to see. He's not on Zoom. He's not FaceTiming. He's, he's not like a security guard with a bank of monitors in front of him. He's kind of checking everything out. No, he just sees. He sees right where you are. He knows where you are. He knows where I am. He sees everything at all times, all places. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't need the cloud in order to get the video to download so that he can see what's going on. He's the God who sees. As a matter of fact, it's one of the first names that we're given for God. It comes early in the Genesis story. And if you don't know the story, don't flip there yet. If you don't know the story, just kind of imagine to yourself what sort of story would prompt this name for God, the God who sees. Maybe you think, well, the God who sees probably means that he sees all the times that I make a mistake. He is the God who sees all of my mess-ups and all of my failures. He is the God who sees my thoughts, including the thoughts that I never say out loud. He saw the thing that I did one time that I still feel guilty for, but I've never told anybody else. He is the God who sees every way that I mess things up. And while that's true, he does see all of that. That's not the story that prompted this name. He didn't adopt this name because he sees all of your mistakes. Like Maybe some of you are on the other end. You, you, you hear the name, the God who sees, and you think, great, like I'm an awesome person. Like I, He sees all the good things that I do. He sees all the times I help people. He he sees all, all the right decisions that I make. Like, I'm awesome. He's the God who sees just how great I am. And he sees the good things that you do and the good decisions that you make. All of that is true, but that's not the, the point of this story. That's not the context from which we get this name. He's the God who sees. Maybe when you hear the phrase, the God who sees, you think of Santa Claus. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. But that's not the context of the story either. The story is found in Genesis chapter 16. It's, it's one small little part of the overarching story of Abraham and Sarah. And maybe you know those names. Pretty big players in the Old Testament. Abraham especially. <clears throat> Abraham uh, his shadow looms large over the Old Testament and over the New Testament and, and over our faith. We consider him the father of our faith. Uh, so really, really big character. And, and it, it would be reasonable to assume that Abraham and Sarah knew God as the God who sees. And certainly God saw them and God knew them and God was with them. But but we get this story not from Abraham and Sarah, even though God saw them, right? You remember God saw that they were uh, in their old age and they'd never had a child. And so God said, you're, you're going to have a child. And, and that child 
And, and your line is going to lead to uh, the Messiah who will come. You will have descendants as many as the stars in the sky. So, yeah, God, God saw them. But that's not why God got this name. <clears throat> Abraham and Sarah are, without a doubt, the main characters of the story. They, they, they are the, the high-profile names and characters. If this were a movie, we would expect their names to be right under the title, right? The God Who Sees, starring Abraham and Sarah. That's how we would expect this story to go. But one of the things we learn from this story is God doesn't just see the main characters, the Abrahams and the Sarahs. God sees those who aren't the main characters. God sees those who are in the shadows, God doesn't just see those who are on the platform or who have titles. God doesn't just see those who have positions of power. God sees the person in the background. And if you have ever felt overlooked, underappreciated, unseen, this story is for you. This title, The God Who Sees, is for you. Now, for context, as we start to read this story... <clears throat> Abraham and Sarah, their original names were Abram and Sarai. And God changes their name to Abraham and Sarah. But in this story, in Genesis 16, they're still going by the names Abram and Sarai, just to help you keep up. This is how the story starts. Verse 1, Genesis 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. So after this promise from God that had come earlier... Nothing was happening. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. Notice the description. An Egyptian slave. Abram and Sarai had fled to Egypt back in Genesis 12. It's reasonable to think it is in that period of their life that they acquired Hagar as a slave. Now, some writers, some... Some commentators on this chapter, they're, they're uncomfortable with the word slave. And so they spend a good bit of time discussing why this slavery is not the way we think of slavery. And, and some translations don't even use that word. For example, some translations say she was a servant. Uh, one translation says she was an, a handmaid. The RSV translates it as an Egyptian maid. Hagar, an Egyptian maid, which reads better to our sensibilities than an Egyptian slave named Hagar. And, and I could buy that. I could get on board with that. Except for what happens next. So Sarai said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go, Sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarah, his wife, took her Egyptian slave, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. Look, I don't know what you call people whose destinies get decided by someone else. I don't, know what, I don't know what label you give that person. When two people in a room over here decide what will happen to the third person, I don't know what label you give that person. 
I don't know what you call someone who doesn't get to make their own choices, doesn't get to make their decisions, doesn't even have autonomy over their own personhood. They, they don't even have agency, autonomy over their own body. Somebody else can decide what happens to that person's body. I don't know what label you would give for that sort of thing. I don't know what label you would give to someone who, once they had a child that they did not choose to have, then would give up the rights to that child, and that child would technically belong to somebody else. I don't know what you call that, but it ain't no maid. Pardon my English. That's not a maid. That's a slave. That's someone who has no rights, no choice, no one to appeal to, no recourse, nobody to plead her case to. Other people are deciding. Notice the language. Sarai took her and gave her as if she were a piece of property. This is the center of our story. A slave. Not just a slave, but now a sex slave, now a victim of abuse, now someone who was forced to do things she did not choose to do. Verse 4, when she, Hagar, when she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Again, in, in, in reading about this chapter and other people's thoughts on this chapter, <clears throat> It was at this point that theologians, many of them, begin to shift the blame over to Hagar. Well, Hagar bears some of the blame for what's about to happen because she got pregnant. She thought she was better than Sarai. She began to despise Sarai. And, and I wanted to ask them. How would someone go through what Hagar went through and not despise Sarah? <laughs> like, I would not blame her if she despised everybody in the story at this point. Her life had been taken from her. She had been forced to do things that she did not choose to do. The story continues in verse 5. Then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. Sarai wanted this, and then she was mad when she got what she wanted, and the abuse ratcheted up. On Hagar until Hagar, Hagar ran away. So we have an Egyptian, a foreigner, a stranger, who's a slave, who's an abuse victim, who's now a runaway. The story continues. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. She had probably been running for about a week. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur, and he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from, 
and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress Sarai, she answered. So an angel of the Lord appears to Hagar, the foreigner, slave, victim, runaway. This phrase, the angel of the Lord, drops into the Old Testament periodically. There are a lot of different explanations, and it would do us no good to try to track down those uh, today about exactly who this representative was. It was obviously someone speaking for God on behalf of God, and the angel of the Lord, again, shows up throughout the Old Testament. This is the first time the angel of the Lord shows up in the Scriptures. And the angel of the Lord shows up to a stranger, foreigner, abuse victim, runaway, and speaks to her. Where are you going? Where are you, com- where are you coming from? Where are you going? Where are you coming from? The angel of the Lord found her, the Bible says. That's the language that it used, uses. And we know that that's human language. Uh, we know that God had never lost her. But in the telling of the story, to make a point, the Bible says the angel of the Lord found her. What, what, what a, a beautiful thought that when we run, God finds us. When we're on our own, God finds it. God always finds us. God always finds us. Where are you coming from? Where are you going? When, when we don't even know where we're going. Sarah is very sure where she's coming from. Notice she never answers where she's going. She doesn't know where she's going. She just knows she's leaving where she was. She just knows I can't stay there anymore. I don't really know where I'm going. And in that situation, the angel of the Lord found her, came to her, met her, was with her. I don't know if you're running today. I don't know what you're running from. I don't know if you know what you're running to. I just know that God will find you. God will not lose you. God will not misplace you. He sees you. He knows you. He has found you. Verse 9. Then the angel of the Lord told her, Go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, You are now pregnant, and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. The angel of the Lord who found her tells her to return to Sarai, her mistress, and submit to her. Can we have a parenthesis right here? Can we, can we press pause for just a minute? Uh, in reading the Old Testament stories specifically, we have a little bit of this trouble in Acts and even some in the New Testament letters. One of the things we have to decide in the narrative specifically is what of this story is descriptive? In other words, it's telling us what happened versus what in this story is prescriptive, meaning it's telling us what should happen every time. This is what happened in this one circumstance versus this is what should happen in every circumstance. And I want to be clear at this point. 
that what the angel says to, to Hagar is just telling us what happened in this particular circumstance. And in this particular circumstance, she was to go back to the place where she had been abused. And along with that message was a promise from the angel of the Lord that she would be protected. That Ishmael and Hagar would survive and that they would have many descendants. That from Ishmael would come a nation, would come a people, would come many descendants. So, so there is not only this command to go back, but there is this promise of protection to her. And, and I just want to say, I, I don't like to speak in absolutes. So I, I will say I would almost never recommend that a victim of abuse go back to their abuser unless an angel of the Lord appeared to both of us. And we heard him say, I'm going to protect you. You can go back. I don't mean I had a feeling. I don't mean I said, well, the Lord told me. No, I mean I saw the angel and I heard him say, in this case, she needs to go back. Otherwise, I would never send a woman back into a place of abuse without extensive counseling and a long pattern of repentance and change on the heart of the abuser. This is telling us what happened in this case where an angel of the Lord has promised protection and descendants, not something that we should take as normal in every case. This is what happens, verse 13. She, Hagar, gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. Who gives God this name? A foreigner. There's debates over what the name Hagar means. There's kind of two streams of thought, but one dominant stream of thought is that the name Hagar means stranger or foreigner. She's a stranger. She's an Egyptian. She's, she's not part of the family of God, we would call it. She's not a, a part of Abraham's family. She's an outsider, a stranger, a foreigner, a slave, a victim of abuse, a runaway, and she names God. You're the one who sees me. You're the one who sees me. I, I don't know if she knew any other names for God. I, I don't know if she knew what to call God, you know when you don't know someone's name, you describe them? Right? He's, the, he's the tall guy. Right? She's the blonde girl. He's the funny one. He's the weird one. Right? You know, right? You just say, yeah. That's, and everybody goes, oh, yeah, I know who that is. I don't know his name. I just know he's this. I don't know if she knew any other name to call him. But having been found by God, she said, you're, you're the God that sees me. Abraham, Sarah, they didn't see her in this sense. Nobody else in her life did she felt seen by. But when it came to the God who found her, she said, you're the God who sees me. That's not an, a Hebrew saying that. That's not an Israelite saying that. That's not somebody that's a part of the Abrahamic covenant saying that. That is an outsider saying you are the God 
who sees me. How interesting that when God reveals himself in this way, he reveals it in the context of an outsider and a runaway. Does God see everyone? Of course he does. Of course he does. Does God see presidents and kings? Yeah. Does God see pastors and leaders? Yeah. But when God wanted to reveal himself as the God who sees, he didn't want anybody to feel left out. And he wanted you to know, if you feel unseen, you aren't, because he is the God who sees you and knows you. And he knows those things that you haven't told anybody else about. He knows the hurt and the disappointment, perhaps the abuse that you've experienced, the alienation maybe that you've experienced, the stepping back into the shadows that is your tendency. And God says, I see you. I have not lost sight of you. I found you. You are found and you are known. Interesting thing about the story. God saw Hagar before Hagar saw God. God already had his eyes on her before she put her eyes on him. We have this, this moment of awakening for Hagar. And part of what she says is, I have now seen the one who sees me. I realize now that God saw me all along. I just didn't know it. I didn't see it. I've seen the one who sees me. God's been watching me. God's been, God's been <clears throat> watching over me. God has been with me. God has been near me. And now I know it. Now I see it. I see the God who sees me. She names her child Ishmael, which means God hears. God sees me. God hears me. No matter what my past is, no matter what mistakes I've made, no, no matter how other people see me, no matter if anyone else hears me. Right? Isn't this the struggle that, that victims deal with often? They aren't seen. They, they aren't heard. They aren't believed. And God, very early in his story, said, I, I believe you. I see you. I know. I know the pain that you've carried. I see it. I have not forgotten you. You are seen and you are heard. Now, this is how God presents himself 16 chapters into his story. There are some implications for us, such as God's people are in trouble if we fail to see the ones God sees. Like God made a big deal out of saying I see the stranger, foreigner, slave, runaway, victim, abuse survivor. I see them. I see them. I know them. That prompts the question of, do we see them? Do we hear them? Do we believe them? Do we find them? It's... <clears throat> It's easy to see the Abrahams and Sarahs in Christian culture, isn't it? It's easy to see the pastors and the leaders. It's easy to see the, the people who write books and have podcasts. 
It's easy to see the popular voices on Twitter and Instagram. This is Christian celebrity culture. They're easy to see, but when God revealed himself as the God who sees, he said, no, my eyes are on the victim as well. My eyes are on the hurting and the broken. Do you see them? Do you see, as you go about your day, do you see them? Do you notice them? Do you care about them? And even beyond those questions, God's people are in trouble if the Hagars of the world don't feel seen by us. There's a difference in seeing and someone feeling seen. There's a difference in knowing and that person feeling known. You, you can't solve every problem in the world. You, you can't minister to every victim in the world. You, you can't mend every broken heart in the world. That's not the question. The question is, do we see any of them? Does anyone feel seen by us in the name of God? Does anyone feel believed by us in the name of God? Does anyone feel known by us in the name of God, the strangers, the runaways, the victims. I, I, again, I mention them often. We, we have multiple people in our church who work in nonprofits who do this day after day after day. They find and they see the least. They find and they see the ones that our culture and our society tends to overlook. They find and they see and they help them feel known those who are hurting and left out, who have little voice and little place in society because that's who God said he sees. You know, in the Bible, God gives us just a limited number of names for himself. It's not an exhaustive list. It's not a very long list. He gives us a limited number of ways to understand him, of ways to describe him, of terminology to apply to him. And one of the very first ways he gave us was for us to understand he is the God who sees the hurting. He is the God who sees the broken. He is the God who sees the runaway. Do we see them? Let's pray. God, we are grateful that we are seen and known and heard by you. God, we are, we are grateful that this truth is real for all of us every day at every moment. But awaken us to the reality that <clears throat> we learn this name in the context of one who was forgotten, overlooked, abused, run away. As you're reminding us in this story, oh, I see them too. I know them too. The faceless, nameless ones that you pass, God sees them and knows them and calls their name. Help us to see as you see, God. Help us to hear as you hear. 
Let us represent the God who sees in the world where we live with soft and tender hearts, not jaded, not cynical, not harsh, but tender to the hurting, the lost, the broken. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen.